up, Danny? How's it going, Tyler? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. You know what great thing has come upon us? Oh, man. I know we talked a little bit about last week. The untethering. <laughs> so <laughs> we're both rocking new strains. I didn't give myself enough time today to actually roll up the joints that I meant to because I picked up some shit, you know, just in like an eighths and stuff. I picked up like some XJ13, some Very Berry. They both sound really great. Didn't give myself enough time to roll any of that today. Luckily for us, I still brought something in. So I brought some J's and some Maui Diesel. Now, I should have looked at some of the info that was at the shop itself, but I didn't. So when I look online to try to find out more about the strain, I can't find Maui Diesel. I can only find Maui Mango Diesel. Oh, nice. Now, that being said, when I smell this, it smells a lot like the description that I'm reading on some of these Maui Mango Diesels. So I'm going to say that the genetics on this are probably Maui Wowie and Brooklyn Mango, but I can't say that for 100% <laughs> certain. That's okay. It's a fun little hybrid, though. A little bit more on the sativa side. I haven't actually tried it yet, but it smells fucking dank. Yes, so. it does. It's supposed to be a little bit more just like mood uplifter. But that's what I got for there. I know you already told me off air, but what was this again? Yeah, no problem. So the joints I brought over for us to enjoy today are of chocolate Thai. That's the chocolate Thai strain, that is. And this one is a legendary land race strain from Thailand. I said it made its first appearance back in the 1960s, so probably some of our parents know what the hell this is if they were dabbling in that. But apparently it was known as Thai sticks, and you used to have to tie it to like bamboo stick or something like that. It was also known for its renowned potent high. The old school variety was known for its like medium to dark brown color. It also had a chocolate coffee aroma. It's mostly a sativa strain, which this one is that I did bring over. It does sit at about 17% from Garden Mother here in town. It's known for its herbal, peppery, and piney notes. You'll get that with those terpenes. So the other strain that I brought was from another shop here in town called Tricomb Valley. The strain that I brought for my vape is Green Demon Number no. 7, and its lineage is derived from Purple Fever Green Fino and Fruity Pebbles OG F2, which is a cereal pheno cannabis strain. And with this, it is known for being a hybrid, typically 50-50. This one that I have is more of a indica dominant, and this sits at about a little over 25% THC. And it does have some of those lemony notes and some of that earthy notes too. So cool. it's a good cross between, you know, just chilling out and for the nighttime, if you consume a decent amount of it, it will set you down. So... I'll point out that that Maui Diesel is from Top Shelf Botanicals. Nice. Yeah, so, so I know we've both been kind of slowly but surely checking out some shops here in town. I did visit one other shop. I'll bring some of their stuff over next week, so I'll wait and talk about them next week. I think Top Shelf might even have stuff like down in Oklahoma from what I was seeing. So Nice. Maybe some of our Oklahoma listeners. Yeah. Oklahoma listeners. If you're Let an Oklahoma know. listener... I got good bud from them, and we're about to find out just how good. I'm going to light yours up, though. I'm nice. going to get at this chocolate tie. I remember a guy in college that used to uh, talk up tie sticks all the time. So Nice. Well, for those who are in the Sooner State, let us know sooner or later whether yeah. or not <laughs> what you guys think about Top Shelf. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to trying out this Maui Diesel. I did try out a little bit of that chocolate tie, so I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. Sweet, yeah. Well, I'm going to spark that up and let's get into the guts and bolts of Perfect Blue. 
Guts and Bolts. Ooh, I gotta say, since we were just on Green Hits, right before I actually lit this up, I had to hold it in my mouth for a second as I was doing something on the computer, and I could fucking taste that chocolate, dude. Yeah, son. That was a good chocolate taste, and I think it's gonna be a real good fucking joint, so. Nice, well, I'm excited about that. Yeah, this is one, too, that one of our co-workers had been kind of talking up over the last week or so, and I heard it from more than one source that it was really good, so I was like, man, fuck it. Let's check it out and see what it's worth, so. Fuck yeah, well... We also checked out this week Perfect Blue to see what oh, that was dude. worth. Guts and Bolts. We'll go into who and what went into this movie a little bit. We'll start off with a spoiler-free intro slash summary slash synopsis. I think I've been using the word synopsis wrong. I think I'd have to give a little bit more info for it to be technically a synopsis. I know what you're saying, but it's, I mean, it's a brief synopsis, if nothing else. Spoiler-free right. summary. Spoiler-free. Pop Idol. Oh, I'm going to fuck up her name. Mima. Mima. Pop idol Mima decides to change her career trajectory a little bit, and the fans, possibly one in particular, seems to not like that, leading to some crisis of identity, and I'll leave it at that. There you go. Yeah, I like it. It's brief. It's to the point. Let you know what you're going to get yourself into. I couldn't leave it at just problems with an obsessive fan because i think that paints this movie out to be something not quite what it is i know what you're saying i know what you're getting at uh, well cool man so of course we do like to talk about our cast and crew from week to week and this week i'm going to lead off with our director and that is satoshi Kon. Ooh, we should point out something about this yeah. right off the bat because i don't think we've done one yet we partially did this because we haven't done an animated horror. You're absolutely right. I know we've talked about several, but not formally done one. So, as we mentioned through this, it's not your normal director doing shit like, I don't know, like we were just talking about like Lars von Trier setting up scenes and shit, right? Yeah, like, yeah, this is completely different. This isn't live action. When we name off the actors, we ain't seeing them. We're hearing them. Yeah. We're finally delving into horror animation. Hell yeah. However many fucking episodes this is in. God. So yeah, this is episode 165, and you know, with all of our half episodes in between, yeah, close to 200 before we finally cracked our first anime, let alone animation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think that's important to get out there from the get-go. Perfect Blue, animation. Satoshi Kon, this gentleman is known for not only being a director, but also a writer and an animator. Some of his writing credits do include such things as World Apartment Horror. He's also directed, written, and animated for such things as the 1993 JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. A writing credit includes Memories. You might have also seen some of his animation work on The Totoko Princess and Master Keaton. But some of his directorial efforts include such things as Millennium Actress... Tokyo Godfathers, Paranoia Agent, Paprika, and unfortunately, his final was a short entitled Good Morning from 2008. All right, moving forward, we have a couple of writers. One of them is Yoshikazu Takeuchi. Uh, he's actually known for the novel that this is inspired by. And that novel was entitled Perfect Blue, Complete Metamorphosis. And we have our screenplay writer, and that is Sarayuki Morai. And they're known for helping with the screenplays for Millennium Actress, the film Steamboy, Knights of Sidonia, and Astro Boy. All right, our cinematographer on this is Hiseo Shirai. And Shirai is known for being the DP on such films as My Neighbor Totoro, which I thought was really interesting. Also, the 1995 animated film Ghost in the Shell. Some people might be familiar with that. 
the television series Vampire Princess Mew from 1997 through 1998. He's also known for a ton of work on the Pokemon series and movies, starting with Mal 2 Strikes Back in 1998. No shit. The uh, Pokemon. We went deep on that on General Nerdery. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Nice, man. So, yeah, there you go. Here's your DP for a lot of that stuff. He's also known for being the DP on a lot of the Card Captor Sakura series and movies. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Inuasha, the movie, Affections Touching Across Time, the show X from 2001 through 2002, Witch Hunter Robin from 2002, and yeah, all those Pokemon I was talking about earlier from 97 through 2013. And DP for, let's see, 2010 through 15, and that's a total of about 465 episodes, roughly. Damn. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, so, we're, we're not going to be able to explain this right now, and obviously not do the research right now. I wonder just how some of these positions translate over when we're talking about animation. Mm. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, okay, so he's the cinematographer. Exactly. It's all being drawn. Right. Like, but, but, but I mean, he's the DP. Like, right. I know, I know you're saying. a director. They still need to have a certain, I guess, direction, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Visually. And I'm not saying they're not doing anything. But no, no, no. There is a difference between live action and anime, right. for sure. And it's kind of like how producers and movies and TV tend to be quite different. Absolutely. Totally agree with you there. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. We have editor... Harutoshi Ogata, and they're known for being the editors on such films as Ninja Scroll, the Trigun television series back in 1998, and Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust. Bloodlust should be sitting over in that pile over there, nice, actually. Dude. All right, the music was composed by Masahiro Akumi, and the only other credit I have for them is Special Powered Armor Troop Dorvac from TV's 1983 through 1984 series. All right, this film was produced by Hitomi Nakagaka. Yoshihisa Ishihara, Yotaka Togo, Maseo Morayama, and Hirokai Inui. Production companies in this were Madhouse. The distributor was Rex Entertainment for the 1998 Japan theatrical release. I have a release date. Uh, actually, was in August of 1997 at the Fantasia Film Festival in Canada, and I believe that was held in Montreal. And it also was released February 28, 1998 in Japan. All right, the budget was an estimated 90 million yen, which translates to about $830,000 here in the States. It grossed, and this is for the U.S. and uh, U.K. only, about $768,000. Right, And the tagline I have for this is, The color of illusion is perfect blue. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. Not going to lie. Yeah, I, think- I mean, it's, eh, it's kind of generic. It's not bad. I mean, I, I get it, but it's eh. But I also kind of don't like get luster. it. because... Anyway, we'll get to that. I feel like that almost gets more spoilery, but... Yeah, no problem. So, moving ahead, we're going to get into our cast. And the way I wrote this up is no discredit to any of the American voice actors and actresses in this. I pretty much watched the Japanese uh, subtitled edition. Right, I didn't watch the dub either. There is... We'll talk about it because it makes a giant change to some of the implications You're of the story. You're right about that, there too. There is a change in the English dub that is monumental. I don't actually think it makes it worse. It just makes it different. It does make it different in how you perceive this film. Uh, That's in the spoilery section. And I'll say I also watched the sub, so I don't give it. No, I did watch both versions. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. I watched the dub and the sub. I also kind of, I didn't care about the dub. (laughs) Even after learning about the big difference, I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to watch the sub. No, I don't. I'm I'm one of those weebs. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. 
Alright, so leading off we have Junko Iwa, and she plays the lead role of Mima Kirigo. And she is a well-known voice actress. She's known for doing such work on films such as series, for the voice of series, Celestial Angel. She was also Kikyo in Hunter by Hunter. And some people might have actually heard her voice as Pai Chan in Virtual Fighter, Mint in Tales of Fantasia, and Saraki to Two Heart. And if you really want to go through her bodies of work... She's got a lot. I mean, she's also known for working on the, the series Neon Genesis Evangelon. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also known for Tenchi the Movie 2, which I'm a big Tenchi fan, man. I really like Tenchi a lot. Uh, she's also done some overseas dubbing here in the States for uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as Princess Mallory. Tons of stuff for video games. She's also a singer as well, so you can hear some of her stuff in Japan specifically. So, hmm. All right. So moving forward, we have actress Rika Matsumoto, who plays the role of Rumi in this film. Now, some of her bodies and work, once again, include a lot of anime. And she's known for such things as Anpan Man, Mobile Suit Victory Gundam. She's also been in, let's see, Pocket Monsters, a lot of those, Bomberman. She's Ash. That's pretty awesome. She's in Pokemon. Ash Ketchum yeah. in Pokemon. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Yeah, also, she's also had uh, some role in the Yu-Gi-Oh! series as Ryo Bakura and Yami Bakura. Which I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, so I think that's probably her biggest claim to fame is more or less, like you were saying, with some of the Pokemon stuff. And she's also done some album work, some video game work, theatrical work, some OVAs, which are pretty dope as well. Let's see here. Yeah. My, oh, my fucking mind is a little bit blown that she's Ash. That fucking Rumi is Ash. Check this out. This is something neat. This is probably more specific to Japan, but when you look at who she dubbed, yeah, I was just it's looking at crazy. That too. Yeah, Patricia Arquette in a shit ton of films. Drew Barrymore, Renee Zellweger, Sandra Bullock, Reese Witherspoon. It looks like just about every single appearance by Juliette Lewis. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, and looks like once again she's got some pretty cool stuff in her discography as well. So another multi-talented actress. All right, the next person I have is Simpachi Suji, and they play the role of uh, Tadokoro, which is one of her managers, uh, Mima's managers in this film. The one that's not Rumi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. So some of their bodies of work include such things as Cowboy Bebop. You might have seen them in or heard them in The Big O. They also were a part of the Power Rangers in Space. If you've also seen such things as like Lupin the Third, you've probably heard their voice in that. Berserk television series, Trigun television series. So some interesting credits, no doubt. All right, moving forward, I have Masaki Okura, who plays the role of Yushida in this film. Uh, well, Yushida is oh, is never said in Mimanya. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Okay, so the you voice only know of Mimanya. his name's Ushida if you look at the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. All right, now they're known for voicing some characters in such films as Akira for Yamagata. You might have also heard them in Dragon Ball Z as Upa from 1989, and also in the video game Battle Arena Toshinden, which is like parts one through three, which I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. as well. All right, and some other things I do have them included are uh, Fist of the North Star 2, which is a television series from 87 through 88, Sailor Moon back in 92 as well, so I thought that was really cool. Next person I have is Yusuke Akimoto, who plays the role 
of Tejima in this film, and some of their other credits include such things as Machine Robo, Revenge of Kronos, City Hunter. You might have also heard them in Lupin the Third. There was also such things as Mobile Suit Gundam Seed, Ninja Slayer, and some of their theatrical works. They were also in Akira as well, Mobile Suit Gundam, Char's Counterattack, and The Last Blitz of Zeon. And you might have also heard their voice in Pocket Monsters, Me Too Strikes Back as a professor. Hmm. Yeah, and Mr. Tishima, he was the guy who was like one of the producers who kind of gets Mima, some of her roles, who kind of helps oh, talk okay. to her you know, verbally. The next person I have is Imiko Furukawa, who is Yukiko. She was one of the Cham singers in this. Okay. All right. Actually, this is her only credit, so that makes that one easy. <laughs> All right. We also have Yuko Shiyua, and they are play the role as uh, Takio Shibua, and that's the writer on the Double Bind show. Okay. And so Yuku is known for being the voice actor in such things as Umi no Triten, which was back in 72. Also for the anime Basilisk, the Kugu Ninja Scrolls. Oh, Slam Dunk was a big one as well. Sailor Moon back in 92, Cowboy Bebop in 99, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure from 2012. And theatrically, you've probably heard his voice in Mobile Suit Gundam back in 81 and Gundam 91, F91 back in 91. They were also part of some of those uh, tokusatsus, such things as Spectre Man, Barum, Seiju, Sentai Gingaman, <laughs> and some of the uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventures video games as well. All right, moving along, we have uh, Hideyuki Horo, who plays the role of Sakuragi in this film. Oh, I know. I know Hideyuki Hori because I played a good bit of Ninja Gaiden, does the voice for the main character, Ryu Hayabusa. Damn, dude, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? All right, yeah, I was looking at some of their other credits, and it includes such things as Dragon Ball Z as Captain Ginyu, which I thought was really neat. Fist of the North Star, you might have also heard them in such things as Transformer, the Headmaster. There's a Mobile Suit Gundam Seed. You might have also heard them in Slam Dunk as well. Some of the OVAs are such things as Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Theatrically, there's such things as Persona 3, some of, yeah, some of the video game works, or Dragon Ball Z, specifically because of Ginyu. So yeah, some pretty interesting stuff as well. All right, we have Emi Shinohara. She plays the role of Eri Ochai, and she was like the female lead actress on that Double Bind show. So she is known for voicing Sailor Jupiter in the original Japanese anime of Sailor Moon. Damn. Yeah, that's big time. She was also in Naratu Shippuden, which a lot of people probably know her from. Yeah, she was in a lot of the takusatsu, such as uh, Seiju Sentai Gingoman. You might have also heard her voice in a lot of video games. She was, like said, Sailor Jupiter in Sailor Moon series. You might have also heard her voice in a lot of the uh, Naratu Shippuden films and video games. She did... Some pretty decent dubbing, too, for some American actresses. Look like like Salma Hayek, Chloe Sevigny, Uma Thurman, stuff like that. And some dubbing for some animation, like uh, 101 Dalmatians, Animaniac, Batman the Animated Series, Looney Tunes, stuff like that. So. All right, we have Masashi Ibarra, who plays the role of Morano in this film. And they are known for their roles in such things as Initial D, this series, Naratu, Eat Man, Shakugan, Noshana. Bakusa Koyodai Let's Engo, Buso Renkan, The Transformers, and some of the Final Fantasy video games like uh, Final Fantasy 13 and I believe 14 and 15 as well, if I'm not mistaken. He was Hohenheim. 
in the original Full Metal Alchemist run. Nice, dude. Yeah, I'm looking through. I did play the first Xenosaga video game. Uh, that was really fun, but they were, looks like in most of all those video games. Yeah, even like for some dubbing, you might have heard his voice as Tom Hanks, Bill Murray, Wesley Snipes, which is fuck out it's Eddie Murphy, Will Smith, Andy Garcia, Bruce Campbell, basically all of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films, Willem Dafoe, which is awesome. That's funny. Michael Moore. And, yeah, and then the list grows on and on, like some of the Jim Carrey films. So, yeah, it looks like a very big voice actor and dubbing actor as well. All right, we have Kiyoyuki Yonada, who is one of the directors in this film. And they're known for doing a lot of animation for such things as, let's see, Dragon Ball GT back in 96, some of the Digimon Adventures, it looks like the Bleach film, Death Note. Just because we have also talked about Digimon on General Nerdery, uh, he is Andromon. Nice, man. Yeah, I'm looking through here. Some of the video game work it includes such things as Castlevania, Rondo of Blood, Symphony of the Night back in 97, Virtua Fighter, let's see, Marvel vs. Capcom Part 3, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. It's Richter Belmont and uh, Smash Brothers Ultimate. Yeah, and made several appearances in several of the uh, Tukusatsus as well, so that's really interesting. All right, I've got two other voice actors, and that pretty much rounds out our cast and our crew. I have... Toru Furosawa plays the role of Yada in this, and they are known for voicing such roles in films such as Ranma One Half. Which one was Yada? If I'm not mistaken, I think it's one of one of the punks in the okay, game. Okay, that's what I was yeah. going to say. I'm, I'm almost certain of it. Some other roles include Zabimaru in Bleach. I fucking love Bleach. That so is that's awesome, awesome, dude. Yeah, I'm just looking through some of this. Val Kilmer in Island of Dr. Moreau. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's some pretty cool shit, man. Uh, Mackay Pfeiffer, and I still know what you did last summer. <laughs> uh, Jake Busey and Starship Troopers. I just saw that. That's pretty awesome, man. Dude, that's fucking great. Okay, and the last person I have is Akeyo Soyama, plays the role of Tadashi Doi, which is like the leader of that punk gang okay. in the beginning of this film. Yeah, and like I said, some of theirs include, uh, yeah, Paul Rapper, The Rapper, 2001, which of course is based off the video game, Ranma One Half, Hunter by Hunter, which is really interesting. P-Gay and Wolf's Reign. Wolf's Reign is pretty fucking great. Yeah, Final Fantasy X. Let's see here, Final Fantasy X2 as well. Uh, Call Kazunosuke, of Duty, wow. or I can't, f in Samurai Champloo. Samurai Champloo is pretty fucking great. <laughs> Wow. So some of their dubbing roles that I see here are for the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance and Roger Klotz on the animated show, Doug. Doug, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I was like, that is so Somebody awesome. Somebody had dude. to be Roger Klotz. Yeah, exactly. It couldn't be Billy West all the time. All right. So, yeah, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. I did mention, too, that there's a lot of American voice actors. I was listening to a, another podcast that reviewed this film, and some of those names that they had mentioned were, like, actresses. Wendy Lee, I know she's a pretty big American voice actress. Ruby Marlowe. And let's see here. I heard the names Steve Bullen, Sparky Thornton. I did see that. And uh, Leah Sargent. So I know just listening to that other podcast, those are some really big names in terms of animation. So I didn't want to at least mention those names, even though I didn't really research their credits and stuff like that. Yeah. I tend to know voice actors pretty well. 
But where my knowledge in voice actors is lacking is the voice actors that do voiceovers for anime. Gotcha. Because those almost require like a more specialized skill set because you're matching lip flaps from different language, but trying to do it so it still makes sense <laughs> with the new script. And yeah. there are some people that cross over, like Steve Bloom is a good example, but some of them are very specific. Like they don't do much voice work outside of doing anime voiceovers. And so like, I've barely heard of some of these names, but then like I click on their names and I'm like, Oh shit, they did everything. Yeah, and that's why when I was listening to those guys talk, they were like really getting into the dubbed version of this film as opposed to subtitled. So I was like, I can understand that because they're big fans of dubbed anyway. So didn't want to not mention them. So anyhow, you gave us a brief synopsis. We gave you our cast and crew. We definitely have to give you some warnings for this film. Yeah, so there's simulated rape and a rape attempt are the two big things. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Nudity. I mean, some language violence, some decent blood and gore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. So the thing is, this kind of bridges to the next section, and I could just as easily say it at the beginning of our next section, but I think it also serves as a warning, is that this movie is technically a psychological thriller, but there is a reason it appears on, like, every animated <laughs> horror list we've ever looked up. That's a good point, yeah. It takes that psychological aspect to a point where, as you contemplate what's going on, it can be very truly horrifying. So Yeah, so uh, keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll just get into it a little bit further as we get into How Perfect Blue Made Us Squeal. How does that make you squeal? So we kind of already alluded to it. We kind of chose this movie based off of online lists. I'd never seen it before. I hadn't either. I've barely heard of it before. Guess what? That's a fucking crime. This movie It really fantastic. is, man. <laughs> I concur with you wholeheartedly, probably for the same reasons. Wow. First off, I didn't think that this movie was going to make me think so fucking hard. Man, and I man. suddenly realized two-thirds of the way through this movie that I shouldn't be as high as I was when I was watching it, because it became very hard to follow, especially the first time through. I will say this. My first time through, I didn't give it as much attention that it needed, but that's typically why we watch it twice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because the second time through, which I took all my notes for yesterday for the most part, I literally spent most of my morning and afternoon not only watching and researching taking notes but then the rest of my evening too like just going through watching a bunch of analysis videos and so i I did a little bit of homework and i still feel like i'm not quite ready to dive too much into it but i'll give it my best shot right i'm not exactly sure where to begin we could begin at the beginning that makes sense but this movie's something else man no kidding now i will say this too disclaimer Mm mm-hmm is it because of some of the subject matter that's involved? I know we mentioned this in the past. Is when it gets into like mental illness and things of that nature, in no way, shape, or form <laughs> am I qualified. So I can only give what I know, what little bit I know mm-hmm. on the subject matter. Because the rest is just learned through reading and stuff like that. So a lot of my knowledge is secondhand. I, on the other hand, am a doctor. No. <laughs> <laughs> right? I did play one on TV. Dr. J. Mm. Yeah, my favorite. So I didn't know what the fuck I was going to get. I was almost ready to write this movie off from the get-go when suddenly animated Power Rangers appeared. I know, I was like, what the fuck? 
I was not expecting that. Because that was like a huge kind of like... What the fuck is this? Yeah, like, what are we going to get ourselves into? What kind of anime is this really? Well, okay. I'm going to back it up before the movie, actually, one more time. Okay. No, I'll find it. When we kept looking up shit of this, though, we keep saying it's a crime this movie isn't talked about more often. Anytime you look up something about this movie, it says, one of the greatest animated movies of all time. Exactly. Why isn't it talked about more? That's why it's I haven't heard of this fucking underrated. movie unless I specifically search for animated horror movies. You know, I think that's a solid point, too. And that's why I feel like anime is one of those things that it gets bastardized because I think a lot of people view it as something that's kind of like for kids, you know, and <laughs> boy, are they sorely wrong. Well, let's point out the time period that this movie came out, there's still a shit ton of people saying the word Japanimation. Good point. Very good point. Japanime and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. It's just anime. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Anyway, now we'll get into the movie. I just wanted to point out, like, God. I will acknowledge that whenever something, we did read something about it, people are giving it its due. I don't understand why it's just not shared around, though. Yeah. Why no it's kidding. not brought up. Like, whenever people bring up Akira as being a momentous anime, you can just as easily bring up this movie. I would say you'll be doing it a disservice if you didn't. Jesus, it's good. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is a mind-boggling film because of what we just mentioned. Just on the onset, it doesn't give you that initial impression like, ah, it's kind of, and I think that's probably the clever thing about it too, is it's kind of off-putting in a way. It's hard to describe what it does without giving spoilers. And so I guess going into it, based on everything we had read online, I was expecting something a little bit more along the lines of Starry Eyes. Okay, yeah, that's a good comparison there, yeah. That's not it at all. No, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. Okay, Power Rangers. Then we get in, and you have... Cham. Cham. (laughs) I hate that. Cham. Cham. (laughs) I'm not super familiar with, like, Japanese pop idol culture. Like, it's not super dissimilar from just celebrity culture in general, so this I think this movie works anyway. But I do feel like this movie would say something more. Maybe I might be wrong, but if you are super familiar with that whole scene. I kept liking a little bit of what was going on, though. And this is already getting deep into the movie. Though, with Menudo. Like, you age out (laughs) after a point. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You got to know when to call it a day. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when some of those exchanges, too, in the beginning, like you were saying, we get that power ranger scene is i think the interesting thing to note between that crowd right and it's interesting what those kids say on the way out too which kind of makes sense is like oh man this doesn't look like anything like it does on television right Mm -hmm. and he's like yeah it looks cheap is what the kid says so already you know there's a disconnect from what you see on television compared to what you see in real life you know there's already that contrast there. there yeah there's a disconnect there Or there's supposed to be a difference. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so there's some other exchanges amongst the crowd. And, I, you know, of course, doing some research, I found out that in Japan specifically, too, which is no different from any other culture, but specifically there, the fans who are like diehard fans are called okatsu. Okay. All right. And so you can consider all those guys who are mingling outside for waiting. They're okatsu. But they're also making some interesting things of note as well because... They're talking about kind of like the importance of Mima's role in that group and the cost of like certain CDs because 
they're like bootleg or special copies that you can't find anywhere else. Like um, at one show, some Okatsu was heckling, I think, one of the other members. And so she got startled and Mima kind of stepped up and took. So mm-hmm. they're kind of talking about that dynamic there, right? So, you know, there's like this fervor for this band. And then, uh, yeah, when they do come out eventually, you can see the contrast in what they're wearing. It's very performance art, <laughs> you know, everything's coordinated. The coloring's different too compared to what we just saw with that. Mm-hmm, yeah, Power Ranger yeah. shit, and with them it's like more vibrant colors and stuff like that, and then everybody's into it, you know. And then you got that unruly crowd, who's fucking it up for everybody else, and then we get the introduction. Not that we knew who he is at first, but you can tell there's something off with this guy. Right. So okay, talking about because this was these past you know this past week was both of our first experiences. Mm-hmm. When you see a guy that messed up looking in one of these. Because we know going into it, it's supposed to be a psychological thriller. You were immediately looking for somebody else to be like a bad guy, right? You figured yeah, he'd be mostly like, that's, harmless. Considering what's going on, yeah, I'm like, I see what they're trying to do. They're, in a way, throwing a curveball at you. And it's it a, sends a red herring. It's an obvious red herring that then curves back later. Yes, exactly. Because it's like, it's, Which was it's awesome, too easy. By the way. I say it's too easy to start it's off too like... too easy. It's uh, too easy, but... Th- there was that's no the other it, obvious though. answer, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's the beauty of it. So yeah. we get the crowd, the unruly crowd, that is. It's just a group of like punks, basically. And our boy, which one of my favorite scenes in this film is when he does like hold Mima in his hands. Well, that's his entire character, right? Yeah, he's just framing her like that. Like that already gives you a sense of how he views her. Right. You know? This is like his princess, essentially, <laughs> if you're going to frame it that way. And then, yeah, the unruly stuff but starts to happen. Specifically, that version. Yeah, exactly. He's holding that image in his hand. And then she cuts out because you start to see the cans thrown and he starts to get beat up. And, you know, he's standing up for her. So you already get that sense. Like, he's a true fan. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He's true blue. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he's memoring all the way. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually the crowd runs those guys off and all that stuff. And what I thought, too, which I should note as well, is that a fan comments that Mima is having a metamorphosis. I was like, oh, that's not something you think about the first time through, but that's an important phrase. That's true. Okay, so here's, you know what, I'll wait, I'll wait. Okay. I'll wait till we get to the end and we get talking a little bit more in depth about what's really going on. So, Well, okay, god damn it. Because I know this is the spoiler section. There's things I, I kind of want to hold <laughs> off on, I know you but it would make sense to talk about them now just as easily with everything you know by, or at least think you know by the end of this movie. Right. You would at least have somewhat of an idea. You know what? Fuck it. It's the spoiler section. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're here for. Part of the genius of this first scene is it sets up her character and, like, the duality of her life. Yeah. Yes, she's this pop idol, but you also keep getting these cuts back to her. Just doing uh, normal stuff. Doing normal. Yeah, doing normal stuff. Being her true self. Right. Theoretically. Right. Knowing what we know. And because they don't show her at the performance, could it be cuts between her and Rumi? You could say that, yeah, for sure. Because of what we do know later on. Yeah, I can see that. Here's the other fucked up bit. Knowing what we know. When she sings her solo at the beginning, it's Rumi's voice. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) That says a lot. And here's the thing I think, too. Knowing what we know, 
and then doing a little bit of research. By the way, we're not going to have any answers in this. No, no, no. I don't want to give any definitive answers. I can give some theories, I suppose, or, you know. I think, arguably, there are no definitive answers. No, and I think that's the, the beauty of this film as well. And I watched, it was like a 10-minute interview that Satoshi Kon had about, you know, of course, this film. And it's hard to tell. And I, th- I think knowing the, the culture, too, is that they're pretty straightforward. Like, there's not a whole lot of joking, per se, mm-hmm. like when they're talking to you directly. So what I'm getting at is, is he said that when they were writing this, they didn't want to make it too complicated. And I'm thinking, that's kind of funny. <laughs> How? What? <laughs> right? It's Bullshit. like, all right, I understand in a sense what he's trying to say, because this movie, it's confusing depending on how confusing you wanted to get with it. Mm-hmm. You know, how much do you really want to dive into it? I think that's where like everybody's entitled to their own opinion. This is a very subjective film. And I think for him, he's like, you know, you don't necessarily have to dive. It's like David Lynch and a lot of these other filmmakers. They like to throw shit in there just because they know it's going to open up dialogue. They're not going to give you a definitive answer. That's part of what they're making that art for is like it's, you know, it's it's your own interpretation. And that's Mm -hmm. fine. You know, why do I have to give you a definitive answer? But that's kind of the beauty of it, too. And it almost sounds like Satoshi Kon was going a little bit more for like what Guillermo says about the end of Pan's Labyrinth, where he left it open, it's up to your interpretation, he prefers that fairies are real. Yeah, and that's okay. <laughs> that's his ending, <laughs> yeah. is that she does go to the fairy kingdom and lives her life as the, the <laughs> elf princess yeah. or whatever the fuck it was, but he left it open for a reason. And it sounds like Satoshi Kon's kind of like, my answer's the simple answer, but we left this open for a right. reason. And knowing, too, this is kind of what's dawning on me thinking about this. Knowing, too, that this is a commentary, right? On, on celebrity. Right. Celebrity idol worship and all that stuff. Is that you can attach that not only to, like, people, but to objects, films. And if you become a diehard film fan, you're going to become what he's critiquing in this film. Well, That's what I'm saying. I was going to... I mean... Especially in 1997, this is obviously way more intended as a comment on celebrity. but Mm. More so than what we have now with social media. But it's very easily read also on a comment on, like, toxic fandom. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Especially with what we see in some of the... Oh, like some of the super toxic parts of recent Star Wars fandom. Uh, shit like that, where they're bullying some of the actors off of social media. It's nuts, man. Yeah, I'll make a comment here a little bit later on, too, Mm -hmm. with, like, some real-world scenarios. And maybe that's, like, reserved for after the film that mirrors a lot of this. Well, there's another big bad one, too. Unfortunately, Selena. Oh, yeah. You know? So there's stuff like that where, you know, people can take this way too far. And I'm trying to think how far I want to get into this specifically, but... I think the thing that's helped me over time to get over that fact, it's easy as a kid, you know, because mm-hmm. simply we don't know any better. We're only confined to our, <laughs> our our environment around us, which isn't very much at that point. But when you do have interactions with people of celebrity, whether they're musicians or sports stars or whatever, I feel like the more that you're exposed to that behind the scenes, like pulling, you know, is you just start to see them as like, these are just fucking regular ass people. <laughs> 
I know we've talked about this before. I know. I, I was about to say, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this. I can't remember when before, but right. I'm pretty sure we have talked about this before. I've always been really thankful that I'm not the type of person to get starstruck very easily. Yeah. I think there are very, very few celebrities on earth that I would truly get starstruck for. Yeah. And I'm thinking that too. It's like, I at this point too, I, I can't honestly like pinpoint somebody I would like freak out over. It's like, oh shit. You kind of still have that moment like, oh shit, that's them. But then after a while, you're like, okay, I mean, it's, it's, you know, whomever. It's You still have to give them their space and their respect. And it's easy to gush because that's all we know them as is their characters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like I said, after after meeting these people after a while and stuff like that, you kind of, like I said, get over that starstruck shit. And I think that definitely helps is just exposing yourself to it. We're talking about a movie. And so... I was just thinking about the fact, like, I guess I've never really gotten to meet any big-time actors or actresses that I like. And so maybe that would be different. I'm not sure, because there is a little bit different relationship with that kind of media, especially with the amount that I bring it into my home, and I'm literally seeing them all the time because of it. Maybe not. I don't know. I, I haven't been able to put it to the test. But, like, this movie actually deals with the world of music... And I've been able to meet and talk to some of my favorite musical acts. And luckily, I've not made a total ass of myself. So <laughs> yeah, just managed to treat them like fucking people. But I know it's, I mean, it's just hard sometimes, especially with the way celebrity culture is played up. I mean, a lot of it is everywhere f- for that, too, for that mm-hmm. for that reason. Is it's sensationalism? I get that it's hard, right? Yeah, I guess is the thing. It might not be hard for me, but I understand very. I much can understand why it because would... at some point, you know, early on, I would say probably for me, up until I was about fairly, I'd say eighteen, nineteen, twenty. That's kind of when I started getting over some of that shit. Mm-hmm. And it's mainly because of seeing cons, you know, like musical acts that I like, and then meeting them, and then like, oh, this is actually pretty simple. <laughs> You know, and then after a while, it's like, you, you know, you build the, the confidence to actually talk to them outside of just like, I like your music and, you know, idolizing them, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's like, OK, not going to actually ask them a real question. And so what I'm getting at is I understand it for a large majority of the mass. They're never going to be able to have that interaction. So this is all they know them as. This is the perception of them as like this avatar figure, mm-hmm. you know. And then for some of us who are fortunate enough to go meet these people, it starts to pull back that veil. Well, and that's what I'm getting at. It's like and everyone gets a little bit easier. It does. It does. It's like there's some people, I mean, I'd, I'd get giddy over, but I don't think I'd get like, you know, just cease up. I, yeah. I just, I think at this point, and that's not to brag. I'm just saying I don't have that feeling per se. Yeah. I consider myself lucky for it. Yeah. And I think we live in a town too. It's super chill because we do have celebrities that come in, mm-hmm. but I don't see it on that starstruck level, you know, like paparazzi coming in you know like bombarding these people because that's not where we're at you know and so i think that's kind of chill too it's pretty cool about here in missoula where are we at in the movie i know we're still early on (laughs) man yeah so we're pretty much like wrapping up where she has her final show mima that is and then it cuts to her like going to her car and and like she's she's getting bombarded by paparazzi this guy hands her a a fan mail he says i'm always looking at mima's room and that's kind of already a, a first sign that's where she first starts to get a little bit paranoid because she has no idea yet what Mm-mm. he's fucking talking about, and so that just that sounds mean? so that just sounds weird. Right, and I I notice that more the second time through. By the way, the animation itself in this movie is fucking gorgeous. It really is. And it is extremely easy to read these emotions because it is so well drawn. <laughs> 
I know doing like a little bit of the research too, it was done this way purposely mm-hmm. because I think at that time too in the nineties, things super got toned like down from the style, right? Of that like super time. stylized stuff, like mm-hmm. exaggerated. And he wanted to make everybody here feel like a real person, and he did a great job of doing that. All the animators did, and I agree with you. It goes stylized, but not to the point of like <laughs> exaggeration. No, over exaggeration. Um, other Mima is quite stylized. Yeah. But it's never exaggerated. It's just strange. <laughs> yeah. Mimania or whatever. Or Uchida. I'm just... No, that's I mean, that's what we find out. Fucking is. Mimania or whatever. <laughs> Mimania. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, Uchida's just as fun. Uchida is stylized as fuck. I don't know what the fuck that's actually supposed to look like in real life. <laughs> I have some ideas. They're not pretty. Ah, no kidding, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good point. They're close to some things I've seen. <laughs> But not quite the same. And they don't ever give an extreme amount of detail. But they do a lot with what's there, I guess. They're not illustrating every single fucking pore on somebody's face is what I'm getting at. But there's still very minimal lines, but they're very particularly placed is what it seems like. You're right. I think that's a good point. Because we get real people, we also get the grimy looking people, the not so normal looking people. Rumi is stylized. Yeah, she And is. I'm not sure how Rumi's actually supposed to look in real life. Because Rumi's illustration is kind of strange. She's kind of got the Innsmouth look, right? <laughs> that's a good point, yeah. Like, that's the only way to really describe no, it. No, no, She's no, starting right. to get a little, like, fishy. Yeah, her eyes are spaced out, too. But at one point, and this is in the very next scene anyway, so it's actually a really good segue, she used to be a pop idol. So I don't think she's supposed to be as weird looking no. as we see her in this movie. I think that's just a distorted view, a delusional view, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. I agree with that too. You know what we know about this film and what it's trying to say. She couldn't have upheld no. the celebrity pop idol. And it's known that she fell, but she made it there in the first place. And if she looked like that, she couldn't have been in that. Just by kind of the laws of the movie. Yeah. The only beautiful people in this movie are actors and pop idols. Do you want to hear Everyone something? Everyone else looks normal. Something really interesting about those two names alone, Rumi and Mima. Yeah. You know what they translate to in Japan? Huh. Beautiful. Both of them are, I mean, like, pretty girl, beautiful. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, it's kind of interesting. It's not uh, a coincidence. It's, you know, they named them for a reason. Maybe it's how Rumi sees herself when she's not being able to be a pop idol. Yeah. And I think that's another, one of those comments to our social commentaries about the way that women are supposed to look in certain, you know, cultures. We know that in Japan, you know, there's a certain standard for women, you know, and it gets Especially ridiculous. Especially in these professions. Right. It gets ridiculous. So I can see that like being a distorted view of herself. This is how she thinks people view her compared to what she actually probably physically looks like. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, it's like, I don't think she really looks like that. I think that's more of a distorted view of oneself. Right. So I hinted at it a little bit earlier, especially upon rewatch, Mima leaving Chum doesn't entirely feel like her choice. Yeah, I can see that. She's she's having doubts. Well, I guess I'm getting more at the fact that like, it feels like the sort of Minuto thing. In Minuto... Yeah, you age yourself out. You age like yourself yeah. out. With pop idol culture, they're supposed to seem pure. And at a certain age, it's hard to convince an audience that you're still pure. <laughs> to maintain that persona, the image, yeah. So it kind of felt like 
she wasn't actually choosing to be an actress. No, it's a part of the industry. What she was choosing yeah. was to still have a career. Makes sense. But she was kind of being forced down that road. In right. The same way. You can tell she probably wasn't necessarily quite ready, but she knew she had to make that move. Otherwise, she'd get pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Career-wise, yeah. To an extent, Rumi might have been right. Like, she probably still could have kept up the pop idol thing a little mm-hmm. bit longer. But for how much longer? It, right. That's the question. How much longer? It's a reality that she couldn't do it forever. But I think part of the point of the movie is that she was forced into this too soon by the other agent that's not Rumi. Mm-hmm. Because it's also her kind of being taken advantage of in this industry time and time again. Yeah, and it that just feeds into <laughs> that side of it. No, I agree. It's going now from like being corrupted, per se, in music, now having that reversed in the movie industry or television but, industry. The problem with Rumi is that, what am I, how am I trying to say this? Mima was probably being halfway forced into it, halfway not. Probably a little bit more, like 55% forced into it. But Rumi was wrong about, even though she's slightly more being forced into it than choosing it, Rumi is still wrong because she's not considering the point that Mima brings up that there's still bad parts about the pop idol side as well. And she still, in that, also wasn't being herself. (laughs) And that's who she's trying to find in this movie, is who is she and what does she want to do? No, she has a very important Fuck, this movie is hard to talk about. No, no. uh, (laughs) This movie is fucking deep, which I'm glad we chose. I mean, it's not why we chose it, but I'm, I'm glad that we chose it. Because I'm of what, this. I'm so glad that we watched this fucking movie. Because this so might be one of the best movies <laughs> I've ever fucking seen. Yeah, no kidding. So the line that she says to herself, and it's actually one of the very first line she learns for the TV role, right? And the, like I said, with the phone call, who are you? Who are you? But it goes beyond just the basic question. That's the whole kind of point for her in this film. Who are you exactly? Mm-hmm. So you can see it. In a way of like a coming of age story for her, not necessarily going from like a tween to it, you know, or like she's having to make this move to where she's not being pulled in either direction. She wants to be what she wants to be, not what everybody else around her wants to be. Everyone else has an idea of what she should be. She's extremely afraid of being defined by what they want her to be rather than what she wants to be. Yeah. But she's not entirely sure what she wants to be. Right. She's just as confused as anybody else, but she needs to make that choice for herself, ultimately. Ultimately, yeah. Needs to. It's up in the air for everybody in this situation, whether they do or not, and that's just part of the things that govern our lives, which is, fuck, this is a really good psychological (laughs) thread. It really is. Because it makes you think, because it's based in realism, Mm-hmm. It's not a pure fantasy, even though there's fantasy elements in this. It's predicated upon an industry in Japan that churns these young girls out. You know, you have to sustain a certain image. And like you're saying, you get phased out. Do you go solo? Do you go this way? And then you have to struggle with your private life and your public life. And it gets murky and because it well, affects everybody. And even as she's trying to figure out what she wants to do, and how she wants to define herself despite all these other people trying to define her. And that scaring the <laughs> shit out of her. Yeah. It's very obvious that first day on set that even though she's already been a pop idol, she's definitely on that set suffering from imposter syndrome. Okay. 
she definitely, especially that first date, doesn't really feel like she's supposed to be there. Yeah, when she's looking around and seeing everybody else. Which is just another confusing part of identity. Yeah. This movie is so much about identity just in general. No, you're right. It's like, do I really belong here? finding a way to assert yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't feel like you belong there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. God, it's fucking good. Before she gets to set, her managers are talking over her fate and Rumi's getting all pissed about it and shit. The second time through, knowing how everything plays out, Rumi asks very poignantly, what are Mima's feelings about this? And that's a lot more dark and fucked up the second time through. It is. Because she doesn't give a shit what Mima's feelings are about that. What she means is pop idol Mima. Right. Stage Mima. Mm-hmm. What are stage Mima's feelings uh, about this? Oh, man, that's... I think, it, yeah, Mr. Tijima. I think it was Todokoro and all of them, they're having that exchange, like... He's saying that we want to give her a drastic image change, mm-hmm. too, because they're saying, you know, she's trying to get out of that pop idol world. So you can kind of shape or mold her image now away from that. So now she can take more risque challenges, rebrand her. And you're right with Rumi. Rumi's like, no, she still views her in that pop idol avatar image. Well, and just as much as Rumi and Uchida both hold up the stage Mima. It's more so with the writer, but pretty much with all of the males that she encounters in this, other than Uchida, it's very heavily animated that they're steering her in the directions that they are because they see her as a sex symbol. Exactly. And they're trying to run her life that way. It's not just pop idol or celebrity. Mm -mm. It's can I still be a celebrity without also falling into always being just an object of their desire? Yeah, I'd say a lot. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> no, because that's another one of those idolization things, too, is sex idols. Mm-hmm. Basically, nobody in this movie is good, by the way. No, no, no. It's a slimy industry, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, every move that she's making in her career, for her, it's giving her larger roles, but they're not the roles necessarily that she wants. It, she's being forced into these. She just and she, she just going along she with it. She feels like if she doesn't say yes, she's letting everyone else down. Right. Because despite being a celebrity, she's still a person and a person that's caring enough to know that they might be assholes doing some of these things to her, mm-hmm. but they are also all working their ass off. Yeah. You know, it's something that in their world has For to be get to done. Be the famous one. Right. And she is also buying into the notion of celebrity. God. Like, I'm privileged for this, even though it starts very much ruining her life. <laughs> yeah. This is where the cookie starts to crumble. <laughs> right. All right. So as they're having these conversations, right, this is to a scene where as heavy as this film goes, I don't want to go this heavy quite yet. But the whole point is there's a fan mail that, that gets, explodes. Oh, First the fan mail that explodes. I was going to say, also, the fax is creepy. Just on, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we're running a horror movie. Right, and like that's podcast. another one of these things, too. It's That's really well done. She has that phone call with her mom. There's something that interesting that happens in there. Like I said, I don't want to get too heavy into that right now. We'll just go through what it is. But she's running a water. She gets that weird breathy phone call. She thinks it's just mm-hmm. a wrong number. But then when she does go check on her bath water, because she told her mom to call her back in a few minutes... She gets that fax, and it says traitor, traitor, traitor all over it. Yeah. So that's already creepy. She's dismissing it. 
this is the second just, kind of instance of that. That's just really well done setting up the horror aspect of this. Like, yeah. We know for a fact she's being stalked at this point. Like, right. Right. It's not a coincidence it's anymore. It's ramping up. She's already paranoid because she heard Mima's room. Well, it's not only that, too. There's a piece of that note that says, it's just like tattered off. It says, is a warning. The next one will be real. <laughs> oh, yeah. From the letter bomb? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. All right. So you're right. It's already building that horror aspect to it. Mm-hmm. This is where Rumi helps set up the computer so that she can search Mima's room. This is dated. <laughs> yeah, I did read I did read one person's interpretation that because so much of this movie can be considered to be very much up in the air as to what is really happening, mm-hmm. that it could be the other way around. Like Rumi? Mm-hmm. Because Rumi's the older one that wouldn't be as in touch with technology. But maybe it's just because Rumi is also her manager and so needs to know these things. Yeah. I don't buy Mm. that idea of it as much. I think in this case it is Mima that's being taught the fucking computer. I feel like it is too. Um, But I understand uh, where they're coming from on that. (laughs) I can understand that argument too. Because we do learn, like, I mean, fast forwarding because it's spoilers. No, no, no. I take, no, actually, I'm going to say fuck that person that said that because I just thought about it more. Mm -hmm. Mima's room had already been started and Rumi runs Mima's room. Right. Well, not only that, but that's what I'm saying is that we know that Mima's room is also a a double under, perhaps, because Rumi has her own Mima room. Yeah. (laughs) Outside of the website. Yeah. It's fucking wild. All right, but in this particular case, Rumi's setting up the browser, teaching her how to do all that stuff, and then they go on to Mima's room, and then that's where Mima learns, oh, somebody has been posting this stuff. It's not me, but it's interesting because this is stuff that I do. And, it, and then it's it gets kind of cute at first. Right. It's like, oh, shit, somebody did a good job. Like, like, that's pretty cool. cool because it's just very surface-level stuff until it gets it's a little bit more personal. whenever somebody emails us. Email us, bitches. <laughs> all right. Exactly. <laughs> So it gets a little bit more personal, like specific. You know, she only buys this specific brand of milk, and this is the food that she buys for her fish. And she's like, how, what? This is not me. This is what she said about the actress on set. Yeah. And that's when she's like, what the fuck? And we have no reason to suspect her manager. Mm -mm. When I was like, so who was around her on set? Like somebody heard her say that. That's the only and way. I, and I never But in she a said it specifically to Rumi. Yeah, and I never in a million years thought it was Rumi. No, no, no. Not the first, especially the first time through. No. That wasn't even, not even putting it together it at was, that point. I was but that's like, why who, I, was, who was close to them? Who was close to them? That's why I wrote down, like, too, in this, like, little exchange. It's like, these are subtle details and clues about Rumi's involvement already. She knows these personal things. So how can somebody else? They had to been on set. Right. We know that oh, homeboy stalking. I would say I would say it's arguable how much he's actually stalking in bits in this movie. I I concur with that too. Like I said, I do think probably on this one on set. (laughs) Oh, maybe not. It'd be hard for him to get on set. The other one, they were in kind of a public place. This one, all right. There, all right, man. (laughs) This movie. Let's put a little lamp by that. What you're saying about what would we say his other name was? It was not, yeah, Uchida. I wasn't about to say Meme Mania. All right. Every time I look at it, uh, I think of like Meme Mania instead I, of Mamania. I almost wanted to call him He Mania. <laughs> Hulkamania. I know, right? It's, that's how close we're getting. Uchida. Right. There's something about him that I've seen somebody make the argument for that 
I can kind of buy into a little bit, but I don't think I can buy into wholly. Okay. So we'll just put a little lamp by that. All right. I did screw up. It's after the Mimi's room shit that it's revealed that Rumi was a pop idol. Right, I but just that's just like the next exchange. Notes, but yeah. yeah. But that's because she's having the conversation with Tadokoro, right? And he's telling her, he's like, times are different from when you were a working pop idol. And it's like, oh, that's a very important clue right. for this whole story. And it's like, and that's what I put. I said, more clues about Rumi's involvement. Once again, I didn't necessarily put that together through. my first time through. No. My first time through, I'm sitting there thinking, he's just telling her she's out of touch. Mm-hmm. That's all that sounds like the I'm first time even... through. You're out of touch. Yeah, I don't even think I even put together that she was a pop idol. I didn't even think I was paying that much attention. No. Well, and with how she looks, like we said. Right. She, said, she looked like a just an office lady, probably in her mid-age, right? Kind of unassuming. Yeah, I'm not kind even thinking frumpy. about her. Yeah, not even thinking about her as a pop idol or anything like that. Not even my register. Uh, the next thing that's going on is uh, Cheetah. He's like going into this video store, and he overhears this guy's talking about Mima, right? That was such a neat way to sort of... Those guys didn't exactly provide exposition. No, it's just but like it's not, quick But it's not exposition. It's the public image mm-hmm. of Mima is very important to the themes of the story. Right. And so having this running commentary of how her fans are viewing what's going on is actually really important. And it's kind of exposition because it kind of sets up like... No, it's still important to the storyline, for sure. Where you're at with everything, but it's... I don't know how to... It's not exposition the way that we're normally given. No, no, you're saying... Because it's such a quick exchange, Mm -hmm. but it does keep you current on how the public opinion is about her. And that's why it's important, too, to have him in that frame, because he has a certain image of her, like you said, because of the way he held her on Mm -hmm. stage. That's his ideal image of her. Yeah, that's Mima. Right. And then when he hears this, there's this there's disconnect. To be this disconnect, yeah. You know, because it's it's differing from what his view is, of course. So and that's why it's important. Him off. Right. That's why that's important for him to have that. All right. So what he's doing is he's stalking her back to I don't know if it's her apartment. I think it's one of the offices that she goes to. Because there's just a few people outside now waiting for her, and she just kind of breezes by them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, you just going to brush us off? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. You know? But what she sees is there's a little newspaper clipping that talks about that punk from the beginning of the film. And it talks about a hit-and-run incident. And as those doors are closing, it starts to frame him as the elevator doors are closing. Cheetah, that is. Oh, shit. So that's another one I of those. I completely missed that. That's what I'm saying. That's another one of those little bit of a red herring moment because it's still setting up his side where it's the horror element of this film, the stalker, mm-hmm. the killer, we think. Ooh, and here's the thing. It might not be, I mean, it's still technically a red herring because he's not the ultimate answer, mm-hmm. but he probably still killed that guy. Yeah, because maybe it's even planting that narrative too because we see him doing hit and runs or at least right. perceived doing hit and runs in these cuts. So maybe that's planting that's kind a seed. Of a recurring thing with him. Yeah, it's like it is. But I think that was important too, the way that scene played out. This is where Cham has just charted, and Mima's, you know, talking to Rumi about that. She's like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." So she has like these little flashback moments of it looks like when they had their first bit of success, mm. and she's like, "I don't know if we'll be able to carry this out or if we'll do anything with it." And then she gets snapped back when Rumi like slaps her on the back. I was like, that's kind of interesting because she still imagines herself being in the group, 
right? But now she's not. She's like, oh, well, they're actually charting without me. That's a lot different from how I first perceived this group, mm-hmm. <laughs> like being even lucky to have this little bit of success. So I think that's kind of interesting, too. You know, I'm not trying to blame her. But if you start having waking visions of yourself telling you not to do something, oof! not only should you probably not do something, but you should probably see other help pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Oh, yeah, that's because what's happening is she's starting to get more lines in her script. Mm-hmm. But you're right. She's starting to have these disconnects. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you got to know when to read the signs. Well, and okay, so the way she's getting more lines in the script is because they're turning her into a major character, mm-hmm. but they're turning her into a major character <sighs> by putting her reason. character, making her character a stripper who then gets raped on stage and suffers a breakdown and oh, character change because of it. Very heavily implicated that she's <laughs> in the role, that she's in that particular role because both her male manager and the writer right, that's what I was like the way say. she looks. Right. And there's like, as long as her agency and everybody else is cool with it, you know, we're going to run with it, mm-hmm. you know? And they're like <laughs> inspiring amongst themselves. They're like, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? They're we're looking at it. to see her tits. <laughs> Basically. As long as everybody else is cool with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. This is, uh, in my notes, this is where I said Mima's character changes personalities completely when she's doing this scene because of the way things are happening, right? It starts off where things are very staged. Everything seems copious, even though it's a fucking rape scene. Everything is I mean, very rape staged. scenes happen. Like, right, right. There's a way to do it. It seems like that at first. Right. Until we know, not just her as a pole, right? When she's going through it, she's like, all right, everything's cool. And then the lights start to... There's a few moments where it looks like she might be hypnotized in this film. I think this is one of those moments. Not that she's hypnotized, but there's a complete disconnect where she's crossed that line now. And here's part of where this movie is so genius, is because I think her breaks from reality, her wrestling with identity, and the way it's presented could only really be done with animation, Mm -hmm. because we're already watching something not real. Yeah, right. Uh, That is patently not real. It's drawn. (laughs) So blurring the lines between quote-unquote real and quote-unquote unreal within something that is already unreal <laughs> is so much easier to do. No, and I agree. And it, it flows extremely seamlessly, and it's impossible for us to truly tell whether she's experiencing it in a real way or not. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think I've even seen some comparisons on like how you try to do it by frames. Mm-hmm. You can't replicate that the way that you can do it with animation. Right. So even technically, you, you can't pull it off. And I mean, there's movies that do the fake out where they show you something and then it turns out that you're on a movie set. Mm-hmm. This is not this. This is no. that, but this is not that. No, because exactly usually you can only do it the one way. You start in the scene and pull out. Yeah. And you're in a set. Right. This is going the opposite direction. <laughs> you're on a set and suddenly it's real and there's no seams. Yeah. And that's fucking crazy psychologically. <laughs> like, that's part of what fucks with you in this movie. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah, there comes a point, especially first time through, where it's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is where the movie goes off the rails, because this is extremely important for one of the other ways that you could potentially read this movie that gets set up. God, yeah. I think something interesting to note, too, is during this whole scene as well, like her rape scene and all that shit, is 
the reactions, of course, to the two characters, uh, Totokoro and Rumi. Like, Rumi's completely distraught. Right. Where Totokoro's like, you know, yeah, it's rough, but I kind of dig it. Yeah. So this is where, for sure, Rumi also loses it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because also, up to this point in the movie, she's very vocally against all she of these changes. She doesn't want to have yeah, any part in this for Mima. This scene tarnishes Mima for her. So now, from here on out in the movie, is where, for sure, you can consider Rumi thinks of herself as the real Mima. Right, right, right. And from here on I out, she's kind of encouraging Mima to ruin her more, because that's the easiest way to sick Uchida on her. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense, because that's the line that has been drawn for literally every character in this film, right? Mm -hmm. You can't go back from that. Even though it was staged and all that stuff, that's not the point. It's the public perception, your personal perception of who she is, how she perceives herself. Which It has all changed. And that's part of the point of the movie. (laughs) Right. All about perception, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. What I do enjoy, too, about this film, I have to note this, I'm pretty sure... Aside from me, there's a lot of people that feel this way. Is the score, the way it emphasizes certain scenes or heightens certain scenes, mm-hmm. and the way it changes between like really poppy songs to very like dark. And there's characters in this film that have literal theme songs. Yeah. So it only makes sense when their theme plays that it's very ominous and kind of the way that the mood of this film is. Uchida, Rumi. And there's Mima's Mima theme, but there's also have... a nightmare theme. So there's a fourth theme. Mm. And the fourth theme is not tied to Ichido, which would make sense. But I've read that you can say that it's attached to the audience because we're also a part of the film. You know, mm-hmm. we're like the fourth main characters. It's also a critique of the audience as well, our perception. So I was like, that's really interesting <laughs> that they set it up this way. I can't remember how much further it is after everything we were just talking about, but one of the lines I wrote down, and it's coming up somewhere pretty close, maybe not super close, because I do know that she runs in front of the truck before this, but what was that tagline that you wrote down? Oh yeah, the color of illusion is perfect blue. First off, I'm going to say as things get crazier in this movie, despite the name perfect blue, (laughs) the scenes get more red. Right, right. I mean, red is like the most. I actually, that's that was my note. Like my big note is like red is the most prevalent color. Right, in this movie. that's like red is the color of perfect blue. Yeah, but the mention of illusion in that line reminded me of this line that I wrote down that I think would probably make a little bit better tagline. What if the illusion found someone to possess? Yeah, that's a perfect quote. That's the line that the actress says. Yeah, you right. Mm-hmm. That's just as important as any line in this yeah. film. The illusion is just these different roles. Right, and that's all it is. It's Like you said, it's perception. It's the illusion that these people are experiencing too, but damn. The truck thing is interesting just because it gets mirrored so heavily later. Yeah. And also because it doesn't, I doubt it works, but that's always a setup to be like, Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, since we're on this subject, right? You could say one of the very opening scenes in this film is when Cham comes out on stage, right? Mm-hmm. The way that it's presented is you see Mima come out and she has her arms up and the lights that are in front of her look like the headlights of that truck that's coming oh, at her. Oh, right. So that kind of lends its hand a little bit to what you were saying earlier because that's how Rumi is setting herself up to get hit by that truck wearing the pop idol shit. So you could say that that was 
maybe her like I, I was thinking two ways. It's a send off because that's how Mima leaves the group, and that's also how <laughs> Rumi kind of separating herself somewhat from that pop idol image. It's a send off. Yeah. After the, you know, what if the illusion found someone to possess, that line happens on set. And it's that next time on set that things start getting really trippy in the movie. And I didn't write down all the specific details. So the day that she cuts herself couldn't have happened, right? Because we yeah. don't see any evidence any other time in the movie right, of right, her right. hands being cut. Mm-mm. Before that, that day happened? I know you're saying that series of things that's happening. Like There's a lot of Groundhog's things day. feed into each other. <laughs> It feels like a representation of depression also. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of looking at that. I wonder, too, how much of it was maybe she was being drugged. Oh, okay. You know? Well, I mean, we already know that she can't tell what the hell is going on. Her reality and her mental state, like, they're blending, right? Like, she can't make what the hell's a dream state and what's reality well, it, it doesn't feels... help that the show is starting to mirror her reality. Right. Her character on the show gets asked if she wants to be a model, God. which you don't know until you suddenly see it repeated and it's on the screen. But it's not, not real because <laughs> she does have to go do some modeling. Yeah. Which kind of ends up mirroring the rape scene, mm-hmm. which was fake. But now this is real and she <laughs> is being taken advantage of. Yeah. Even though she's doing it, quote unquote, willingly, it's because in this system, she feels like it's the only way to continue her career. Right. And so that doesn't help because that's all blending. (laughs) Yeah. But then the most interesting blend and the one that I wrote down that gives another interpretation of this movie, despite just being like, well, that was Rumi's voice in the beginning and weird shit like that that's sprinkled throughout is her last scene of the movie also plays twice. The first time when she's in the middle of her mental break, and then the time that's shown on TV. In her mental break, she gives a completely different way to read this movie, which is the character in the TV show Double Blind is what really happened to her. And the rape caused a mental break mm-hmm. where she now thinks she's a former pop idol. You know what it made me think? Like, <laughs> I know exactly which scene you're talking about. It made me think of high tension a little bit. Right. That's what I felt like. Okay, is this the show or is this for real, for real? Yeah. And the rest is just like... And there's uh, nothing in this movie that necessarily contradicts that reading of it either. No, exactly. Which then makes this entire movie suspect. Which I think it's interesting to to note because there is a scene, a very important scene, towards the end of the film where they bump into each other, Eerie and Mima, where Mm -hmm. Mima is still talking to her as she's like the doctor. She's like, no, you don't have to call me that anymore. We're not. You need to wake up from this dream. I was like, it kind of fits, too. It would also explain why certain things keep coming up time and time again. The imagery before the spotlights and or the truck. Mm -hmm. The fact that the rape scene basically gets played at least three different times in this movie. Good point. In almost the exact same fashion over and over again. And it would be a good explanation as for why nothing necessarily adds up is because it's all in her head. And the the real version is what happened to her on the show. I'm saying there's so many ways you can interpret this film. It's unreal. But that's a very solid point. You can look at it that way. I wouldn't really argue with you because <laughs> the way this film plays out, you can read into it. 
there's enough detail given into the rest of this movie that I'm not entirely sure that's, that, what, that's yeah. supposed to be the point. But ultimately, I, I think that, that reading makes more of this make sense than just trying to figure out if <laughs> yeah. the ending is Rumi or Mima. Yeah, I know. God, that, if that's not difficult enough. <laughs> right? I know that's like, God dang it, man. But that's what makes this film fun. So you were talking about when she breaks the cup and she's bleeding from yeah. her hands, right? You can also say that mirrors a little bit of Totokoro in hurting his hand. And I was reading this, or uh, I should say, I was watching this analysis by this guy, and I thought this was really interesting, is that there's a scene Totokoro has with Rumi, and I can't remember exactly what they're talking about, right? But you can see he has bandages on his hand. And then I think there's a group of people that walk in, it might even include Mima, and his bandages disappear, mm. right? I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And two, the last two people to die, murdered, I should say, in this film, are Totokoro and uh, Uchida. Uchida. Now, this is what I'm saying. This guy said that you can somewhat interpreted that Uchida and Totokoro were the same person, that you could see that Totokoro was the guy who had a certain idea of what she should be in the industry, right? And it was a projection. I was like, ah, I don't know, but... That one's a little bit more of a stretch. I think that one's a little bit more of a stretch. I I do feel that way, but some of the arguments weren't too off the mark. The thing that kind of makes me wonder, too, about Totokoro, his death is that we do know that he drives off, or it looks like he drives off from that lot, because Rumi stays behind, and she finds Mima after her attack or oh, assault. Right. Yeah, yeah. So how did he wind up being dead? I know there's a time between all that shit, but when she makes that phone call, we see Totokoro with Uchida. It looks like on that lot or on that stage. Mm-hmm. He has both his eyes out, Totokoro is, but Uchida only has one out. And I was like, with duality in this film, I was like, I wonder if that's kind of a metaphor. Like, if both his eyes were out, then the real danger would be gone. But one eye still means maybe that there's somebody else. Oh, okay. And that's, of course, we know it's Rumi. But yeah, I was like, man, that's, I don't know. There's so much, <laughs> there's so much shit you can read into this film. I don't know if I, like I said, I don't know if I agree that Totokoro and Uchida are the same person. I don't think it is. No. But I could see maybe an argument a little bit for it. I just feel like Uchida's character is what we said earlier. Like, he perceives her as that stage presence. That He's toxic fandom. Right. That, exactly. He's what we talked about, the otaku. But beyond that, he's, like, taking it to a whole different level. They call it shintai. Okay. Which literally translates to, like, kill for. But it's also, like, a translation for bodyguard. Mm. But they're known, like, the less fervent are known as otaku. He also goes to that other Chom performance mm-hmm. and visualizes seeing yes her in the middle memorian on stage yeah because he's videotaping it that's an interesting scene with him because even at that point everyone else is still not just excited but more excited like chom is charting now they've yeah. never charted before and everyone else is getting way into it and they're changing and he's still not willing to accept change when his version of memorian's on stage it's still the old school outfit, not right. this new shit that they're no, doing. No, 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 no. And she doesn't quite sound like she's part of the group, like even in the sound when you're listening to the song. Like, mm-hmm. not off, but just not right. The weird part about that scene, though, <laughs> when that happens, the crowd reacts like somebody did step out on stage. Is that in his head? You could read it a couple of different ways. You did could... Rumi step out on stage? That was another point I was going to say. Is like You could read it that she stepped out. And it was like, what the fuck? (laughs) 
Yeah. And the others do look kind of uncomfortable, just like they're yeah, sitting there going like, through the, the motions, the like they're on? like, fuck you doing, Kanye? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, so there's moments like that where you can interpret it that way. Now, something that I saw earlier yesterday that I feel like it's probably more appropriate in this context is with social media and even knowing a little bit about Japan is that they were a little bit at the forefront of technology with computers and stuff like that before we got a hold mm-hmm. of it here in the West. Did not you, watch, lot, did you watch the Zero Eye Patch Wolf video? <sighs> I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. He talks a little bit about social media and how like now everyone... I watched a, a couple of videos on this yeah. too. and I think the guy's name is Zero Eye Patch Wolf and does a really good video on why Perfect Blue is even scarier these days yeah. than it was when it first probably, came it probably out. probably is the same video, because it makes a solid point that we've all become both the performer and we the audience. We watch the same one, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, that's we're very all performers, poignant. all audiences now. Right, we've become, on, on social platforms, we're kind of avatars of ourselves, And I think that's a perfect metaphor for what's happening in this film, is that each person views her avatar, her... Not necessarily in that context, like the social media, but performance arts and, you know, whatever platform she was using, is they see her in that way. They see her as this image. It's their perception not, of her. Not the person on the other no. side. Not the person at the computer. No, absolutely not. And she, oh my God, that was such a fucked up part when she's so lost in herself that she's she doesn't remember the fucking room to so find I out guess what I did. went shopping. Yeah, that's what makes this film dark. I know another motif, I'll, I'll get to this point, but fish are important in this film too, if you want to read this film and a lot of different clues. But with the Avatar, this, that's how I made it made this film a little bit more easy to read, knowing some of this shit that's going on in this film. It's like whether it's the real Mima or toxic fandom Mima. Well, that's... Or herself, like the way she views herself Mima. Everybody has a different view of who Mima is. <laughs> well, yeah, it's... In a lot modern, it's like, are you you? Mm-hmm. Are you your Instagram profile? And once people, am I what people say I am? And once people are fans of your Instagram, like let's say you're one of these people that have a million followers, how much do they own that image? Right, that's a good point. And how much are you obligated to? Obviously, the answer is you should never feel obligated, but that's not the reality we live in. You're going to feel no. obligated if you have a million fucking people following you. Right. That's what I think what we got back to earlier is getting over that fandom or that point where you're idolizing people. And, and then, obviously, there's fans like Uchida that take oh, it too man. far. Right, which I mentioned and you mentioned, too, with Bjork's fan. Don't have to necessarily go back into detail, but that and with Selena's manager, you know, that's a perfect example of how far people can take it outside of the industry and within the industry itself. I mean... You can throw a rock and hit a number of celeb stories that have come out in recent years of different celebrities, especially women and people of color, being bullied off of social media by mostly asshole racists and misogynists, but also just shitty, toxic fans that don't want to see the thing that they love change. I know. And yeah, we get it. Nobody really likes change, you know, when it's sudden and, you know, but it's a part of life. It's unfortunate in some respects, but it's also one of those things that it happens as a natural progression. And with things like media, it's not like you can't go back and watch the old version or listen exactly. to the old tapes that you do still like. Exactly. And I think, you know, when people get to that point where it's, I think it happens, you know, because I, I'm a fan of music. I know you are too. But even when a, a band goes in a different direction sonically, you know, that can <laughs> cause a, a, a huge division in, in fandom. 
It's like, oh, they don't sound like their previous albums. It's like, give it time. You never know. It might grow on you. Right. They can't be... It doesn't even have to be changing sonically. Depending on the subculture, of, man. the subgenre and subculture of music yeah. you're into, it could just be signing to the wrong label. That too. Simple shit sometimes to us. It can be a huge thing for other people because of that fanaticism, that obsession with it. And it's like, I get it to a point, but there comes a point too where it's like, you have to draw the line, man, somewhere. I don't know exactly when it happened, but at some point in my life, I just tried to be happy for the artists instead that they're getting to try something new. Maybe they just didn't feel that way anymore. Good for you. Now you're doing something the way that you feel. Exactly. Maybe they always wanted to do this and they just didn't have the opportunity (laughs) until they established themselves. I'm happy that you're getting to do this now. That sort of thing. I look at it this way. I look at it from a fan of Garth Brooks who went to Chris Gaines. (laughs) He just he was trying to change it up. <laughs> you just made me choke on my weed. <laughs> Damn. Chris Gaines. This is kind of that, though. When I was watching this movie, I started thinking about Christina Aguilera during the Dirty Era. Yeah. Damn. I know, right? Genie in a bottle to, like, damn, girl. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, it's not even like she changed out of music. She changed her image. And there was a lot of people that were not happy. I know. There does come a point... I think that happens not just in Japan, of course, but here in the States, too. I mean, we we get a lot of that shit with boy bands, girl groups, pop in general. Mm -hmm. It's really bad with that shit. So we get to see the concept. I think Britney Spears is probably another good example of that, unfortunately, where we saw her her snap and, you know, it's like, oh, she's crazy. It's like, well, no, kind of driving her crazy. She doesn't. She probably had that moment. 2004 Britney is perfect blue. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. You could look at her. You can look at a number of specifically actresses, some actors as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there comes a point where, who are you? <laughs> yeah. That's perfect segue. But that's, I think that's the point of this film, too, is that question is so important. Not just within the confines of this film, but as a whole. Sometimes we have to have that reality check. Who are you, exactly? Something else that I missed the very first time through. Second time through, hit me like a fucking ton of bricks. When Rumi grabs Mima and she's like, we're going to take you back to Mima's room. Yeah, dude, that's so creepy. <laughs> the second time through, you're like, oh, she doesn't understand the context of what she's saying. And it doesn't really hit her until she sees that fucking poster on the wall. And then the fish are alive. We're like, oh, shit. And she looks out the window and the trains, the L is a lot closer. And you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> she's in fucking Rumi's place. And then Rumi comes out all dressed up like her, and you're like, God damn. And it says so much about where Mima's still at that she can't see Rumi as looking like Rumi. Yeah, it's crazy. She still sees her as other Mima. Even though we see Rumi, I'm convinced that's not what Rumi looks like, based on everything this movie's telling us. It's a distorted view. We see Rumi's view of Rumi Mm -hmm. in the mirror. Right. Maybe that's her real self in the mirror because she sees herself as the real Mima, right? Right, right. All right. And then, of course, Mima sees her as something completely different. And then the mirror image is something completely different. Well, I mean, the mirror image is the Rumi we've seen before just in the outfit, which since Rumi is very frumpy, doesn't look all that great. I still contend with the way that Rumi's face is drawn. She could have never been a pop idol. So that can't be the way she looks. I, I agree with that, too. So... I will give it that the mirror shows what Rumi thinks Rumi looks like when she's not a pop idol. Mm-hmm. So I that's, think that's she's how probably I look at still that. rather attractive. 
Right. I think she's probably a really good-looking 40-year-old. Yeah, it's like she probably looks like an aged Mima. Right. But she, Who just lost the, it. The problem is she doesn't look like 18-year-old. Right, 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 right. I mean, like I said, she's probably she mid-age. She might not even be 40. She's probably... She'd be 26. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. That's how she perceives herself because she thinks that's how other people perceive her as. And she aged out. She had her fall from being a pop idol and wants it back so bad and can't see herself as that unless right. she is that. She's trying to control Mima's career, I guess, in, in essence, because she's trying to live vicariously through her. So she has that image of her, what she should be. Mm-hmm. What she probably ultimately wanted to be in the beginning, Rumi, that is. But her career didn't go as planned. No. She did make it, though. She's right. referred to as a pop idol. So mm-hmm. that's still 10 times further than most oh, other man. people yeah, ever yeah, yeah. Um, She ain't in that shit no more. No. <laughs> oh, I tell you a scene second time through yeah, that yeah. really, no puns, but it highlighted something. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. There's that cut when Mima is right before she gets attacked by Uchida in the hallway after she talks to Iri. It looks like he abducts her. Then the hand slams the trunk of the car that mm-hmm. Rumi's driving. And then Totokoro drives off. But before he does, his headlights illuminate Rumi. And Rumi, when you kind of watch this film, when things are highlighted, she kind of looks like the pop idol illumination that you get throughout the entire film. Or like, oh, okay. You know, like the sensationalized version mm-hmm. of, of these characters. It's like, oh, it's kind of highlighting that she's the real <laughs> Mima. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But that's the film in itself the colors, the lighting, the music. They're all details. They're all characters in this film. The chase is really cool. It's trippy. It's really trippy. Dreamy. They end up getting fucked up. The slow fall onto the glass was weird. That's the one place where I felt like the animation in this movie was really strange. Yeah. At the end of them getting all fucked up and shit, the implication is that Rumi is now basically permanently stuck as Mima. Occasionally still slips back into Rumi. Mm-hmm but is living in a home. Yeah, some kind of mental facility. And Mima's still coming to visit her every now and then and bringing her flowers. And then the big difference happens. I know. With the English dub versus the the subtitled. With the original voices. Plus there's just the weirdness of what you see in the mirror. Because the mirror, the scene previously, was showing us, quote-unquote, the truth. Right. And you see Rumi in the mirror as Mima. And then she goes outside, hears the people being like, oh, that can't look be alike. Mima. She would, must be a lookalike. Yeah. And in the original voices, Rumi's like, it's me. And in the English, it's the Mima voice actress. Right, She's right, right. Like, no, nah, it's all me. <laughs> right. That's where I think there's a lot of confusion in because, not just because of those two exchanges, but because if you've only seen the Japanese version of it, you know, it's like, what the fuck was that all it about? It ends on a mind screw. Right. If you've seen the English, it ends on a very hopeful note. All right. I'm glad you, we both bring this up, but I'm glad you bring it up too, is when I watched this the first time, I watched it the English dubbed. Mm-hmm. And I told Patrick... I like this because it felt like there was some closure at the end of this film. And then I went back yesterday and watched the <laughs> Japanese version, knowing what I did know reading that shit. I'm like, man, this fucking film. <laughs> All right, because I wanted to think, this is how I perceived it, right? Was that, okay, 
Rumi, like they were saying, Rumi sees herself as the real Mima and she slips in and out of being Rumi. Right? That's why she sees herself as Mima mm-hmm. in the mirror. And then, like, so those nurses have that exchange. It's like, there's no way Mima would be visiting here. It looks like a lookalike or a double. And then she goes into a red car. But this is the only time where she ever goes into the driver's seat. She's always a passenger in those cars. Right. So I read it as this. You can read it like she's taking control. Now she's in the driver's seat. You can say that the reflection, when she says that, I'm the real me, you can say the reason she looks in the rear view specifically is that she's putting everything behind her, and that's her real reflection of who she is. Mm-hmm. So it's like a confirmation. I've put things in the past. It really is you, and I'm in the driver's seat now. So she has control of her life. But I don't think it's that simple either. <laughs> I would like to think that's how it concludes. I think it's still kind of hopeful. I don't know how a weird mix of the two actually works, but... I feel like the ultimate message is that you can read it super dark where it's just straight up roomy. Right. And that people don't care that this is a movie about image and avatars and that you can read it as the only thing that matters is that image. People don't care as long as you're fitting in that image. And Mima can't do it anymore, and Rumi can, so Rumi is Mima. It's just that simple. She's the one fitting in that image, so now she's going to do it. Yeah. You can also read it, especially if you've only seen the English dub, as, and here's the super hopeful way, is it's kind of like, almost what you said, is like, I've put this all behind me. I've moved beyond this. Yeah, I've got a grasp of who I am now because of this. I am who I am because of her. Yeah. The way I read it a little bit more is a little bit in between, and it's that she's, the confusion with seeing them in the mirror and her saying in the roomy voice, it's me. But oh. seeing herself in the reflection and the fact that none of this might matter anyway because we might have been given the answer in that flashback before she ended the fucking thing. God, I mean, even, even <laughs> further back than that, what you were saying with what the actors in the show say about her mental state. Like, you know, here was this pop idol who was transitioning to an actress and she got caught up in the confusion yeah, She's fucked up. Now she doesn't know who the hell she is. This is all in her head now. I still kind of go hopeful with it, but I think it's a more complicated, like, she does have to accept the sort of roomy parts of her just as much. Because even before she goes off the deep end, like, she's looking back and being like, ah, I kind of still wish I was a pop idol. Yeah, she does have those moments. And she's become decisive in the way she needs to be while accepting the fact that she needs to make these decisions one way or another, Yeah, I guess. And that's kind of how I feel about it. That's why, you know, you can look at it as a coming of age, you know, like... She's accepted there needs to be bittersweet decisions. Right. But she needs to be making them herself and not just being led along. Right. And unfortunately, she got taken advantage of to learn that truth. Right. And I think that on top of the fact that everybody had those perceptions of who she is and what they felt like she needed to be, she saw where that path was leading. Mm -hmm. And that was the ultimate resolve is having those encounters and having all that. And that line, she says, I am who I am because... It's still a fucking mind screw. It It doesn't have to be read that way. No, it doesn't. That's what I'm getting at. You can look at it at a certain... I mean, not certain. Any number of angles. And you can make arguments for all of those angles. And that's the thing. But... I don't think it needs to be as complicated because of the, I think the motives are more important. The themes are more important is 
the commentary on this industry, the idolization of actors, actresses, sports stars, etc., and what it can do, you know, not only for the public perception, but for that person's, mm-hmm. you know, how it can affect them. And it's even more important now because we're saying because of social media, you can become a completely because this is different. all of us, right? In a way. It, yeah, we can, can become completely different from our personal lives and put a persona on a platform. And that's what people think, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not the fault. That's because we're putting off this persona and they're feeding into it. <laughs> but then there comes what they're saying in this film. There comes a point where you can take it way too far, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that it's a precautionary tale. It's important to note because, it, unfortunately, this happens in these industries. So I think it's a commentary on that just as well. Because, I mean, these guys are filmmakers and they know. <laughs> I'm kind of curious with this pretty fucking fire weed we've been smoking. Yeah. How many times we've repeated ourselves trying to explain this movie. <laughs> I know. We were probably saying the same thing two or three times. But it has to be stressed because I can see now. All right. I can see why Darren Aronofsky is a big fan. Mm-hmm. I can see why Christopher Nolan is a big fan. I can see why this is heralded as, you know, what it is. What, not More only, people need to know about it. That's the thing <sighs> I'm on. Yeah, I'm on it. that huge kick too, dude. I can't believe it took, what, 23 years to finally see this film? But in a way, I appreciate that fact because I feel like, you know, watching all these films that we have watched, I have a better idea on kind of what's going on. Whereas mm-hmm. I felt like if I would have watched this back in 97, 98, 99, it would have gone right over my head. Because I wouldn't have read all this stuff into it. Right. You know, I just wouldn't have. I probably would have been like, eh, tits. Yeah, I'm like, oh, damn, rape scene. I hope my mom's not watching. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucked up. Yeah, I can do it. <laughs> no, I'm a proudest fap. <laughs> But the point being is, I think I have a better appreciation of it now. And I think it is just as important now as back then because of all the stuff we've been talking about. So I think it's a good warning sign to maybe not deviate too much from your real self. I also want to point out, like, we've been trying to talk through it and try to figure out all these different ways that we can look at this and which ones feel most quote unquote true to how we read this movie, I guess. But... We didn't really touch on how all of this is very unsettling, and I understand yeah, why this is. is so often thrown in with horror movies. It's a psychological thriller, it technically. It definitely is. It's 100%. Like, it's scary to think about losing your identity that no much. No kidding. And how much this movie uses its medium to pull you into the confusion that Meme is also experiencing. There's like a sense of urgency and... Yeah, you can see that deterioration, and it's scary. It's a scary thought. Like I said, I think earlier, I said because this film is somewhat grounded in reality, too. You know, even though it is an animation, there's real aspects in this film. Yeah, it feels so rooted in reality that it throws those emotional hooks out and yeah. just to just grab your attention and be like, no, look, like, I don't care if this is animated. This is how it feels, it's such, man. And Maybe that's this isn't at. even exactly how it is, but this is how it feels, motherfucker. Right, and... I think it's uh, one of those films, too, is you don't have to be a fan of animation. You don't even have to have seen an animation. How did we strike such fucking gold? It's all going to be downhill from here. Uh, I I know, man. (laughs) It got me thinking so much this weekend, especially after yesterday, man. I'm telling you, I spent, I'm not even joking, like, the majority of my day researching this film, not just trying to watch it and take notes, but I'm like, man, there's so much to digest in every single frame Everything that's going on, there's so much detail. 
the color palettes, you know, it's just one aspect of it. You see all the reds and the greens mm-hmm. and the blues, and they all have different meanings in this film, and they're juxtaposed on top of each other. And there's so much you can read just into that alone. And one thing I'll say, too, is I was going to say there's a scene I wanted to specifically talk about that guy brought up. And I was like, oh, shit, this is fucking crazy. He says, you can look at the way that light is either overexposed or oversaturated in this film in particular scenes. And he thinks that the first sign of Mima kind of having a disconnect from reality is when she has a phone call with her mom in her apartment. Right. Mm-hmm. He says the only time that you hear Mima talking or, and having her mom talk back to her is in frames where everything seems like organic, the lighting and everything seems normal. It's a low cut. And then when she's not, it's in a wide frame, and it sounds like she's kind of talking to her mother the way that she perceives her mom should be, like very loving and supportive and whatnot. So you don't even hear her when her mother has a response to her. She's just like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. She gets the phone call, and it's the guy breathing, and then she's, oh, it must have been a wrong phone number. And she just carries on, and then when she they have another cut, you can hear her mom kind of being disappointed. Mm. And so he makes the point that as subtle as it is and as early on it is because we're still getting a feel of who these characters are, they're already inserting like this is what to expect when you see these certain lighting aspects is that there's this distortion of reality or how like there's a a delusional state going on. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, that's fucking heavy, man. (laughs) Can't be throwing stuff at me like that. This fucking film is just exquisitely well-crafted. It is. And to think that this is Satoshi Kon's, his very first his film first. he had directed. What? That is mind-boggling. I'm going to have to get on the paprika train. Yeah, uh, what's that's probably going to be my next one. Yeah. He did one that's like not a very serious film. It's more like light-hearted. Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, Paranoia Agent, Paprika. You said you already watched Good Morning, right? Yeah, his okay. short film. But yeah, Paprika, from what I understand, Nolan pretty much was inspired by watching it for his film Inception. There's so many different things borrowed and lifted. Mm -hmm. Black Swan was highly inspired by this film, Perfect Blue. Uh, He bought the rights, Aronofsky. Oh, yeah, the bathroom tub scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Aronofsky bought the rights to distribute this Perfect Blue here in the States so he could use scenes (laughs) in Black Swan (laughs) and. All that stuff. So, I mean, it's a huge impact and a huge influence on mainstream just as well. And I think we don't realize, and not you and me, but as a whole, we don't realize that <laughs> because you're not thinking of animation in that light. Like films like Akira and stuff like that are more they well get known. They up so much more often. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I, I don't know. Like I think this- it's probably time period, too, when that came out earlier. But mm-hmm. still, this film is fucking crazy, dude. <laughs> Obviously, we fucking love this. Yeah, we yeah. Can't I can't recommend this highly It's enough. ridiculous. I went ahead and bought a copy. I know you did, too. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I bought mine digitally, it. but I will probably rebuy it yeah. uh, a hard version as well. It as needs a 4K. I find one that like, I, I want. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't um, blame you. The original print doesn't exist. Did you read about that? You know, I think I did read a little bit about that. Yeah. I can't remember what happened to it, but the original print no longer exists and, and everything is is restored VHS copies, basically. Yeah. That they've just, you know, spent a shit ton of time making the best polished versions that they can. Yeah. And I, I know there's another film, too, like, I think Nightbreed and I read a little bit about Event Horizon 2 are kind of like in that state where there's a lot of the original has been lost and some of the earliest stuff that still has it intact is VHS copies. 
It's like, but you know, it's better than fucking nothing. I mean, I don't know what you would do with animation. Like, uh, could you know. have somebody just, I mean, trace over Possibly. digitally Possibly. to enhance? That wouldn't have the same effect. You would want somebody that was involved with the original to give it some sort of legitimacy. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, some and, authenticity. And Satoshi Kon is unfortunately passed. Yeah. I know he had some hand, of course, in the animation this, but I know there was a big studio involvement too, so I don't know what the status is over those guys, but... I'm just trying to think of ways that you could do, like, a legitimate, like, 4K version. I mean, animation's kind of weirdly different anyway, because you could kind of... Uh, I don't know enough, I guess, about the technical side of these things to know how that would work, but what I do know is the original print doesn't exist, and that makes it a bit more difficult, so... No doubt. <laughs> But yeah, regardless, this is a film like we've been mentioning, dude. If you don't have it in your collection, do yourself a favor. It's, man, this is honestly a film I could see myself thinking about 10, 20, 30 years from now. Yeah. It's easy. just, it's man, it's so much going on. And I love it for that reason alone. It's, it's not just because of that, but it's the way it's done. I think despite some of the visual limited technology in this movie... The way it actually deals with the ideas of avatars and, you know, like your fucking ideas of self and all that yeah, bullshit. Like yeah. we've already been talking about for two hours now. will make it relevant as long as we also live in a digital world. No matter what that looks yeah. like, I think it's going to keep this movie relevant for as long as that's a thing. I'd almost say that this would be, be a really good film for people who are in the industry to watch just so they can get some perspective yeah, this is, you know, this is a movie, but there's so much truths in this, especially for that field of work. Like I said, it's a precautionary tale, not just for us as fans, but for them, too, as actors, mm -hmm. actresses, entertainers, essentially. Yeah. I think it's a very good film for audiences across the board, just for those reasons. I don't know if I can say anything else without yeah, repeating no, I, something I've already said, so. Dope Pass Film. Blows my mind that this is not just an animation, but his debut and the influences it has that we're talking about it 20-something plus years later. Man, wow. Mind blown. Highly recommend it. I'm glad we're finally covered of it. Damn, it took a while. Right. <laughs> Better late than never. We had a request. We did. That's pretty awesome. So I think next week we're going to be talking about The Dentist. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and I'm super excited. And then maybe after that... We might be talking about something else. We're going to try to get that set up. That'd be a lot of fun. And that would be a lot of fun. We'd like to shine a light on that movie a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but in order to listen to us talk about Corbin Burnson. Yeah, dude. Corbin Burnson. Corbin Burnson. <laughs> Major League's Corbin Burnson. <laughs> in The Dentist <laughs> next week. Please hit subscribe. If you're listening to us right now, that'd be super cool. If you could rate and review us, that would also be super cool because the world is currently ran on algorithms and however you get us up in being seen is always okay by us. We, I mean, like, thank you, please. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, please. You can always head over to our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Check out all of our back catalog. You can contact us through the website or by emailing us squirmcast at gmail.com. While you're at the website, you can click the links up at the top. We are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. That is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can click up through there. Check out the other shows that are currently on the network. It would be The Art of Wargaming, where Zach and Malark 
talk about war and war philosophy and Warhammer and Bellegarth yeah. and all of that all wrapped together in one. And you can listen to Zach and me talk about nerdy shit over on General Nerdery, and there's going to be more shit to come. We've been saying that for a while now, but there's a global pandemic on. So fuck y'all. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's going to take some time. Just bear with us. We're getting there. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. We say it every week. If you have film recommendations, if you have suggestions maybe for the show, or if you're a filmmaker need some eyeballs on those films, always up for that challenge. Check us out on the social medias. Search for Fried Squirms. You'll find us. Yeah. And dentist. Yeah, dude. Dentist. I actually do need to make an appointment at the dentist. This will <laughs> just help remind me. So Nice. For this week, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Out. Oot.